would take your Bibles and turn with me to Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7. It's been two weeks since we last looked at Esther. And the last time we were in the book of Esther, you had things uh, beginning to come to a head, it appeared. And you had the, the great paradoxes and the great changes of fortunes that were, appeared to be just on the horizon. You had um, Mordecai, who appeared at the end of chapter 6, that, or at the end of chapter 5, that he was doomed, that he would be killed, that God would not spare and protect his life. And at the end of chapter 6, you're like, whoa, Haman's family is telling him, buddy, your life is limited. You are very close to death. And so we pick it up in chapter 7. And I think as we look at the text, uh, the adversary and enemy is destroyed. That is the big idea um, that God demonstrates his control through mighty deeds. If you remember, chapter 6 ended with these wor words. Um, Haman has just come home from a long day's work. Um, he has been out in the city square leading Mordecai around on the king's stallion with the, the king's robes wearing on Mordecai and the great prince of the king, Haman, proclaiming for everybody, this is what is done for the man whom the king delights to honor. And at the end of that long day's hard day's work, uh, Mordecai goes home with his face covered. And you can just see him, you can imagine him getting home, and he is telling his family of all the hardships that he has experienced in verse 13, his wife and the advisors that he has says to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. And they no sooner say this than the king's eunuchs come in and they tell Haman, Hey, hey buddy, you have an appointment. You have a feast to attend. You are late. Pack up your bags. Put on some, you know, perfume, get a, or not perfume, some makeup, cover up those tears. You look like you've been crying. It's, it'll be okay. You're going to the queen to feast. And so in verse 14, that's what happens. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came in and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. And so starting in verse 1 of chapter 7, we're going to read through verse 10. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day, at the banquet of... <laughs> All right. Let's... Let's, 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 try, let's try that again at verse 1 of chapter 7. All right. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and on the second day, at the banquet of wine... The king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition, and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female servants, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. 
So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. Then the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine. Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbana, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good of the king on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. Father, we do thank you for your, your sovereignty over life's events and the fact that you have chosen to use your chosen people, the nation of Israel, to accomplish your desired task, that you have promised to care for them and to preserve them, and that you have demonstrated that, and that you have remained faithful to your promises and your word. We pray that as we um, examine the text and are reminded once again that you are in control, that you are faithful to your promises, that we would be encouraged and challenged by these truths um, for this coming week. In your name we pray. Amen. The, the text continues, and as the text continues in the first few verses, verses 1 through 5, you really have this idea of a reversal of fortunes that continues. And, and the instrument or the, the individual who's behind all these reversals of fortunes is none other than God. As we go through this text, you're going to continue to see Ahasuerus, the mighty, lifted up, powerful king, as somebody who is really just a pawn to be used by the various people who are in his life. And that becomes um, abundantly clear as we continue to read through the text. But the God reverses fortunes. If you remember back to a couple chapters ago, what happens? A couple chapters ago, Mordecai hears what Haman is planning. And he comes to Esther and he tells Esther, hey, this is what is going on behind the scenes. <laughs> Haman has intents to kill our people. And if you don't do anything, we're all going to die. So, so you've got to go to the king, and you have to tell the king what's going on. Because if you don't, we're all going to die. And what is Esther's response in that circumstance? Why does she say she's not going to go to the king? Why is she hesitant? It's because for the last 30 days, she has not seen the king face to face. Does that sound like they're on good speaking terms? How many of you would, you know, say that you're on good speaking terms with your spouse if you haven't seen them for 30 days and you're living in the same city? I don't think any of us would be, you know, foolish enough to be like, yeah, we're, we're in a good relationship right now. No, that's a bad relationship. And so Esther 
in this circumstance, in this historical background, having not seen her husband, because he hasn't called for her for 30 days, is now being asked to go into the king's presence and ask the king to spare her people. Chances are good or bad. Eh, probably don't look that good if you're Esther. Right? You'd be really kind of nervous, kind of like she was, and you'd be like, everybody's got to fast for three days. I'm fasting too. And then if I go in and die, um, at least I did my part. That's the idea that you get from the text. And, and so in the following chapters, what happens? She goes, the king sees her, and he welcomes her. I mean, here has been a king who hasn't called to see his wife for 30 days. And then all of a sudden he welcomes her into his courtroom when what she did deserved death. You see the reversal that's happened here? She comes to the, he comes to the first banquet that he has, she has set up and he asks, what can I do for you? And she says, oh, please just come to another banquet. And he comes again. And now you have in these verses right here a reminder once again that this is indeed a reversal. And it's a reversal not because um, Haman has thought through this strategically. Haman doesn't do any thinking in Esther. Haman is, or not, uh, Mordecai, uh, Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus, doesn't do any thinking in this text. He never does. Any decision that Ahasuerus makes is based off of the advice and input from other people. He doesn't make decisions. He's not a ruler who rules. He simply sits there and he goes, what do you think? Oh, that sounds like a great idea. We'll, we'll go with that. That sounds, you know, first idea, and then he runs with it. So in verse 1, so the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. So Haman is rushed in, uh, Mordecai is rushed in, King Ahasuerus then assures Esther of his favor. I think this is a really significant fact when you consider the historical aspects. Because for 30 days, he hasn't seen his wife. And now all of a sudden, three days in a row, he's told her, what do you want? Up to half the kingdom, I will give it to you. Who is changing Ahasuerus' mind? Ahasuerus is not someone who thinks. Ahasuerus is someone who is spontaneous and just does whatever is presented to him as a good idea by somebody who's standing close to him. Like, to stand close to Ahasuerus meant you had power because you could talk. And just by talking meant that what you said was going to happen because the guy's head was in the clouds perpetually. And so Esther then asserts that her, position, her petition is to save her life. And you see that in verse 3. The queen answers, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me at my petition and my people at my request. Why? Why is she asking for her life? I mean, if he was going to take her life, you would have expected that he took her life back a couple chapters ago when she was so brazen as to march into his throne room and assume that he would demonstrate grace. And then she goes on in verse 4, and she tells him exactly why she is petitioning for her life and for the life of her people. 
she says in verse 4, For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed. In case you didn't get that, Ahasuerus, not only to be destroyed, but to be killed. And in case that is still not very clear to you, we're going to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female servants, I would have held my tongue, though the enemy would could never compensate for the king's loss. The idea is, if, if I was just going to stay alive and get sold as a slave, I wouldn't have bothered you with this information. Though you would have suffered great loss and you couldn't bear it really, it'd be okay. I would just keep quiet. And so she comes, she tells him, this is the plan. This is the danger that we face as a nation. We're going to be destroyed. We're going to be killed. We're going to be annihilated. You, you get the idea that she's like really trying to emphasize and get through to him. This is going to be a drastic change in your kingdom because we're all going to die. And so she communicates that to him. And you got to love King Ahasuerus because once again, the all-powerful king that we saw in chapter 1 who is full of power and wealth and majesty just appears so foolish and un, on top of things. What is his response? I mean, this is the king that signed the edict to allow a whole people group to be killed two months earlier. And his response to this is, answered and said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? It's like, you really don't think at all, do you? Like, people give you an idea, and you're like, sure, put my name on that, go ahead, put the money in the coffers, and take care of it. That is how King Ahasuerus has acted, though, from chapter 1. It's what we expect at this point. That the person who should be in the most control, who should have everything put together, and everything under his power and his control, doesn't. Why? Because the text is silently portraying someone else as behind the scenes. Someone else who is reversing the fortunes. Who? God. Someone else who is saving his people. Not the king. The king can't string together a sentence hardly. God is the one who saves his people. Someone else who punishes evil. Not the king. The king doesn't have a moral bone in his body. Who is punishing evil in the text? ultimately traced back to God who is sovereign and who understands who knows, who cares and who acts as a result and so the text begins and it, it demonstrates that there's this complete reversal of fortunes King Ahasuerus is not really portrayed as someone who is cognizantly thinking through these things and bringing about change he's just reacting to what comes to him but not only that, the text continues on. And as the text continues on, it becomes obvious that God is the one who has saved his people. God saves his people. Uh, Esther's pronouncement that Haman is responsible here is terrifying. That is Haman. And, and so Esther so eloquently, once again, just like as she's talking to him and she says, uh, we're going to be destroyed, we're going to be killed, we're going to be annihilated. Okay, is that clear enough? Here, she does something very similar. She builds up the suspense. 
to bring about the final answer and to really get Hasuerus um, emotionally behind her, I think. And, and so she says, the adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. And at that, the king is obviously enraged at Haman. And, and Ahasuerus is angry, and he begins to leave the room and go out to the garden. And as he does so, Haman is terrified before the queen and the king. And so the king leaves in his wrath, leaving Haman begging for his life. And this is where he fails to follow proper harem decorum. And as a result, he gets himself into even greater trouble, if it's even possible. So the king exits the room in wrath, very similar to the wrath that we've seen the king portrayed as. He's someone who flies off the handle, who does not have control over his own emotions, much less over those who are around him. That is how the text is consistently portrayed Hasuerus. He is not in control, not even over his own emotions, which is really what we expect, because angry people hardly ever really are controlling that anger. But it's, it's consistent with the character that we have seen developed in the life of Ahasuerus. So he flies off the hand, he, he exits, and Haman stands before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that the evil was determined against him by the king. No kidding. And then the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine. Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? It, it, it's hard to know exactly, but various resources say that to even be seven feet from someone who was in the king's harem was too close because there was so much immorality and so much evil in the Persian courts that that close was too close and you could be accused of all sorts of evil against somebody. And so the, the idea that Haman would be laying on the same couch pleading for his life before Esther, the king comes in, he sees that, and he's just like over the top enraged because this guy now appears to be assaulting his wife. And so he's enraged, and the servants see his rage, and as the servants see his rage, um, they're like, we're going to take him out. And, and so the text continues on. As the words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face, demonstrating this guy is going to be executed. And so, once again, um, God has preserved and protected his people. God has saved his people. It's not because Ahasuerus thought through this systematically and came to a conclusion that it's better to be on God's side than man's side. It's because God used the character of Ahasuerus to accomplish his purposes. Then the text concludes, and you have this note that God punishes evil. Verse 9. This is one of the eunuchs that was in chapter 1, and now he resurfaces. Now, Harbana, Harbana has watched the king, right? He's watched the king for all these years, and he's learned that if you want something done, simply speak in the presence of the king, and the king does what you suggest. 
So Harbana, you know, he just kind of stands here on the side. He's looking all casual like he doesn't know what he's actually doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows the character of this king. It doesn't take much studying the character of the king to go, this guy doesn't have much put together. He's not in control. Harbana looks on and he just kind of goes, look, the gal is 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Just like, just putting that out there. And, you know, I mean, this is same day that Hasuerus has so royally honored Mordecai in his faithful service to the king. And then he hears this and he's like, wow, this guy really is out to get me. And the king's response is, hang him on it. And it's not hanging like you and I think. We think of hanging as asphyxiation. This is more like impaling. So they're impaling him on a 50-foot high cubit, or a 50-cubit high, it's like a 75-foot high pole. And it's like really, really gross, and it just demonstrates how um, defamed this person is to die in such a way. I know it's, it's gross. <laughs> All right. So he says, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. And so God punishes evil. The servants of Haman know that he is headed for execution. Harbana suggests the gallows is a fitting punishment, and Ahasuerus fittingly agrees. It, it is in line with his character. He is not in control. He is not the one who is ultimately leading this nation. And so he agrees, and the king's wrath is assuaged. And so as we, as we look through chapter 7, I think that there are a few things that rise to the surface that point us to who God is and how God works. I think, first of all, we see that God is in complete control of the hearts and the emotions of all people. We see that in chapter 7. Why do I say that? King Ahasuerus and Queen Esther were not on speaking terms 35 days ago, or so, 34 days, something like that. He hadn't seen her for 30 days. That, that takes some sort of relationship harm, I would think. There's some sort of non-speaking terms going on here. Maybe she got mad at him, or maybe he got mad at her, or maybe they both got mad at each other. But all of a sudden, here's this king who day after day now, for a few days, has said, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. God is the one who is controlling and changing the heart of Ahasuerus. The text doesn't tell us that Ahasuerus got sad because he mistreated his wife, and he repented, and he saw his sinfulness, and he wanted to restore, reconcile the relationship with his wife. Why? Because Ahasuerus hasn't changed. But nonetheless, God has controlled his heart in such a way to accomplish his purpose. God will work his salvation when he chooses. We see that. And it's been two months since the decree went out to kill the chosen people of God. And here we are. The salvation of the Jewish nation in Persia is being worked out it's still not complete. There's still the decree to kill people. That'll all kind of begin to pan itself out in chapter 8 and following as we continue on through the book. But God is beginning to work out his salvation. And he does so when he chooses. 
sometimes God may choose not to save people physically. But he'll do so if he chooses to, when he wants to, in his time. And then finally, God will punish. He may not punish in the same way that he does in the text. There are lots of evil people in our world today who do not get punished by God in the same way that we see the text describing God's punishment. Some of these people will go to their deathbed still with great wealth and with great power. But ultimately, God will punish. may not be in this life, but in the afterlife, God will punish. And so as we think about all these things, I think how do we respond to this? How do we live in light of all these truths? I think, first of all, you and I must choose to submit ourselves to God's sovereign control. If God can work behind the scenes in such a way to bring a husband and a wife who haven't talked together for 30 days to the place where the husband repeatedly for three days in a row says, I'll give you anything you want, even up to half the kingdom. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Um, you know, it's in your best interest to get on board with his plan and choose to follow it because he's going to accomplish what he wants regardless. And furthermore, you and I, as we look for deliverance, we are tempted to look in all sorts of places and all sorts of avenues and venues for our deliverance. We may look to our retirement accounts for promises of deliverance from economic oppression that may come. We may choose to look to your favorite senator. You probably have one just like I have one. You may choose to look to a representative that you have, or you may choose to look to a stash pile of guns that you have, or ammunition that you have, or you may choose to look at the Constitution and say, the Constitution is to be read in a literal hermeneutic and to be interpreted in that way, and we have to find justices that will support that. And and all these things, I'm not against these things. But none of those things will ultimately provide us our deliverance. None of those things are the things that we look to provide us our deliverance. They may be instruments, they may be tools that God would use, but those are not our ultimate hope for deliverance. Our ultimate hope for deliverance from the trials and the difficulties of life is through the sovereign power and control of God. And then finally, we ultimately rely upon God's judgment of evil doing. It's easy for us as we look on and we see evil in the world to have a desire that we would see that evil punished. And yet, for all of us here, to my knowledge, none of us have been given the responsibility to carry out justice against evil. You can't go vigilante. But what you can do is you can rest assured in knowing that your God's character is one that is holy and just and righteous. And he does see evil and he will punish evil. And we find our hope in that. Not in our ability or the government's ability to adequately prosecute all those who do evil. And the fact that God sees that he has provided a means of forgiveness and redemption for those who do evil through his son's death, burial, and resurrection. 
And if they choose ultimately to reject that, he sees and he will punish. And in that we find hope and we find peace in the midst of all the uncertainty and in the midst of all the difficulty that is around us. We know our God's character. We know that he is one who delivers. We know that he is one who can change the hearts and the emotions of people. And we know that he is one who will judge evil. And we can rejoice and sleep easy tonight, knowing our God. Father, we do thank you for who you are. We thank you for the fact that you are in control, that you, that you control and orchestrate the events of life, that you can change people's hearts, that you are the one who is our source of deliverance and hope in the midst of uncertainty, and that you are one who punishes evil, and that you have a hatred of evil. We thank you for that truth. We pray that we would find hope in that truth, and that we would seek to encourage others with these truths. In your name we pray. Amen.